looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What's going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 518. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, for the first time ever, we've got Mark Shipper coming on the show to talk about the career of Peter Yates. A lot of people might say to themselves, well, who's Peter Yates? You might not know him by name, but you definitely know his movies because he made some of those beloved films from the late 60s through the early 80s. And uh, yeah, Mark, it's just a, a pleasure and a privilege to be talking about his career because I never even really thought about how this guy gets overlooked and neglected. So thanks for making the pitch, and welcome to Wrong Real. Absolutely. It's my pleasure and my privilege. I listen to this podcast all the time, and uh, I'm thrilled to be on it. Yeah, I'm always trying to slowly but surely expand the the net of the Wrong Real community, and so it's always fun meeting a, a, a new face. But for people out there who don't know you on Twitter or anything like that, before we dive into Peter Yates' career, anything about your, your own life that you wish to share? Yeah, I'll just give a little basic background. I was... Uh, I was a newspaper reporter and a writer uh, in Chicago from 2009 to, uh, well, I still write things periodically, but it was about a seven years career where I was uh, really doing it for a living. Um, I, I got into repertorial work because I was using it as, a, as an education for writing books, actually, kind of like um, some of our famous writers, Jack London and Mark Twain. Ernest Hemingway, all these guys took uh, an education in journalism before getting into book writing, so it, it seemed like a great place to start. Um, I'm kind of transitioning out of that now, partly to write books and partly because uh, I find the environment in that profession uh, hard to tolerate at the moment. But I'm kind of moving toward books, uh, fiction, n- nonfiction, and well, it was kind of my my goal originally to write fiction books for the canon that um the western canon that's kind of going away so my my ambition to write deathless books is kind of slipping away i kind of rather write books that i want to write now Uh, like i said nonfiction and fiction and hopefully i can turn one of those books into a movie maybe get bot to make a movie and use that leverage uh, to either write the script or or even get a chance to direct it. So books and movies are kind of the thing I want to get into. Which author in the last 30 or 40 years has written works of fiction that for you 
are going to really withstand the test of time? Because like, I guess like the, for me, the, the quick and easy answer would be someone like Cormac McCarthy, because whether you're talking Blood Meridian or all the pretty horses or whatever, they've already been like their praises have been sung so many times over. But do you have any particular favorite author of, the, uh, of the, like during your lifetime who's really made fiction, uh, you know, really relevant for you? No. When I when I look at fiction, no. Um one of the guys who was still alive and uh, working a little bit while I was alive was a guy who blended nonfiction and fiction, a writer named Hunter Thompson. Oh, I love him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think actually we talked one time on Twitter. I recommended a book of his letters to you, The uh, the, the Proud Highway, a great book of letters. Gotcha. Yeah, the only thing I've read was Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And if yeah. I'm going to read another one of his books, the next one on my to-do list will be the Hell's Angels book, which I, I guess really helped make a name for him. But it's funny yeah. thing, like over the last two and a half years or so, I've read more fiction during that period than, the, than at any other time in my life. It's because I, knew, I moved into a new apartment and had a bathtub. So every night I get in the bathtub and I read, and like right now I'm reading Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You know, we talk about the canons, like in a 150-year-old book. And yeah. it's still just absolutely riveting sci-fi. And for sci-fi junkies, I mean, these are it's like one of the foundational building blocks of sci-fi, but it's incredible just how, I mean, forget all historical or literary concerns, just how entertaining and enjoyable it is this many years later. And so while I don't actively read a lot of new fiction, I have a few fantasy and sci-fi authors that I like, like Joe Abercrombie, and I read like the Expanse books. But a lot of that stuff's more—it's just it's genre fiction. But I don't read right. any literary fiction. Probably the most recent literary fiction I read was um, oh my god, I'm totally blanking on the name. Brady Sinellis's sequel to Less Than Zero. Oh my god, I, can't. <laughs> I only read it like a couple months ago. In any event, he did a sequel to his first book which came yeah. out in like 2010 or 2011. So that was the last time I read something that wasn't like, didn't involve people with like spaceships or swords or spells or any of that kind of stuff. Right. Was it uh, Imperial Bedroom? That is it. Yeah. A literary fiction is, uh, it's dying right now and I hope it can be revived, but you know, you, you get some messages about decolonizing your bookshelf and taking apart the canon. So I, I don't, I don't know where it stands right now. Hopefully it, it's very durable. Like you say, a book 150 years ago, go book 500 years ago, like a Don Quixote by Cervantes. And these things were built to last. And when you read them, you understand why, um, yeah, master stylist, master storyteller. That's for me. What, why I could yes. come back to fiction. It's the, it's not the events. It's the style of the author's voice and a really good author can just hold you in their hand and just carry you on this extraordinary experience. And if other people don't want to talk about works of the canon or whatever, I'm happy to continue reading them and enjoying them. And every once in a while, I'll crank in a little video. I did a video last year of my top 10 favorite reads of 2020, not of 2019, not books that I read in 2019 that came out that year, but just from any old period. And right. so I think I'm going to continue to do so. I actually got a chance to read as Craig Zoller's upcoming book for a blurb recently, and I'm waiting to find out what is my uh, my cutoff for actually doing a uh, or what my, when the embargo ends for doing a review. But he's a uh, a mean and nasty dude in a lot of ways. And his fiction <laughs> is this one called The Slanted Gutter. It is fucking ruthless in every way that you expect it to be after seeing something like uh, Bone Tomahawk. So I still, once again, I, I keep one foot in that world just as a consumer, just because I enjoy it so much. Yeah, no, I get I get that, absolutely. Now, I also see on your bio on Twitter that you are a jiu-jitsu player. How far along are you in your jiu-jitsu journey? <laughs> yeah, COVID has really uh, put the put the submission lock on that, to, uh, to use a metaphor. 
I'm in it five plus years now. I'm a purple belt with a couple of stripes. God damn. And uh, yeah, I train um, when I'm training. I train every day, sometimes a couple times a day. So seven days a week when I'm going well, uh, barring injuries or whatever else might get in the way. But uh, with COVID, I haven't really trained since, geez, when we shut down in March. So I've been doing some yoga and trying to stay loose. But uh, I got to get back to training. Actually, this this Wednesday is actually supposed to be my start bake, uh, start date coming back. I'm getting together with one of our black belts for a, a session. So hopefully this Wednesday, Wednesday I'll be back at now, it. Now, in your school, typically, what kind of um, milestone you have to reach to make that transition from uh, purple to brown? You know what? There there are no guarantees at all, it, and it's very uh, it fluctuates wildly depending on the the player. We got some guys who train twice a week, and it's just some exercise. We got some guys who train twice a day, seven days a week, if not more. So, um, you know, you get four stripes generally, but those are just kind of guideposts about how long you've had it. So you'll, you'll have your purple belt for a normal player, probably two, two and a half, three years. And some people longer, some people much less. Yeah. A friend of mine had his purple belt for years and years and years just because he would kind of go in and he'd go out. Yeah. And the big problem was he was moving a lot. And anytime he'd go into a new school wearing his purple belt, they're like, oh my God, he thinks he's a purple belt. And people would just jump on him and like all right let's yeah. see if he really does have a purple he's like wait 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 wait. like i haven't done like in months like i'm out of shape but like anyway they did not want to hear any excuses if you walk into a school wearing a purple belt people are gonna put it to the test <laughs> yeah there are there are no excuses in jujitsu the mat is the truth and uh that's one of the things you actually have to get over if you want to make it a long time in jujitsu which is there are going to be some serious humblings sometimes they're going to come from lower belts sometimes they're going to come from upper belts you know, some guys in jiu-jitsu, I mean, they're like Division One wrestlers, and yeah. uh, they, they've been grappling for 12 years. athletes with like a Ex- horse neck. Yes, exactly. And great a- explosive athletes, great endurance. And, you know, you get them with a guy who's been a jiu-jitsu player for a couple years and a blue belt, sometimes purple belt, sometimes brown belt, and that wrestler might hand out a butt kicking. But once you get to the top, once you get to the black belt level and you've been grappling 10 years, you can, uh, you'll hold your own with anybody if you've been training the right way. Do you have a favorite right now a competitor in either in, prof- in like you know either in sport jujitsu or in MMA who really exemplifies the the ground game for you? Yeah, one guy I really love, and I got I got some a few beefs with the UFC. I, I love it, but I got some problems with the way it's run. But the one guy I'll always tune in for is uh, Brian Ortega. Oh, he's incredible. He he's in the new movie Tax Collector. He's uh, he he pops up a couple of times. He's trying oh, to make the really? transition to acting, but um, yeah, it's it's a Spanish speaking role, and he's a handsome devil, and I think he's definitely got Hollywood on the brain whenever MMA draws to a close. But he is incredible. I'm a massive fan of Brian Ortega. Yeah, I loved him. The first time I saw him uh, in the octagon, I actually I took the video and watched it with my professors because I just wanted to go over all the jujitsu I was seeing on off of his back. At that level, usually playing off your back is a very difficult thing to do. Those guys are such trained assassins. They know how to break guards. They know how to uh, KO you while you're lying on your back. And Ortega was not only winning fights off his back, he was doing extreme damage to opponents. Yeah. Um, Tiago uh, Tavares, I believe was his name, he, uh, he put a gash over his eye as he was trying to drop bombs from the top that I've really never seen from a guy playing off his back. He's extremely slick and really skilled. And then his submission game, man, if he gets his arms around your neck, you're going to get strangled. Yeah, I'm looking at his record right now. He was on a six-fight win streak prior to his Max Holloway fight. And I saw a lot of them, but yeah, when he just he destroyed Frankie Edgar. I mean, he. I mean, these are some of the, <laughs> some of the best people in the sport. Destroyed Clay Guida. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, he's got a laundry list of people. 
but uh, hopefully we won't. I mean, it's been wow since December of 2018 when he had that loss to Max Holloway. I guess maybe he's been more distracted by Hollywood than uh, than uh, I, I would like. I always, I mean, I love seeing these athletes make the transition to Hollywood when their career starts to draw to a close, but it's like, right. don't make the jump too soon because you can do Hollywood into your forties and fifties. You really right. have like your window in MMA, but something tells me uh, he'll be back. He just, he's so goddamn talented and hopefully he'll have a, a belt around his waist at some point. I hope so too. Well, beautiful. Well, let's start switching gears into Peter Yates for people who don't know who he is. What was his big claim to fame in the late 60s? How did he make a name for himself before he started diving into these films that were going to be tackling it? Just kind of set, set the stage for Peter Yates' career. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was funny. You mentioned it right at the outset. Who was Peter Yates? I didn't know who Peter Yates was until about six or seven months ago. And uh, I, I totally started watching him kind of by accident. I, I watched a late 80s movies of, of his called Suspect, which was really nothing special. And um, I don't remember why... I went immediately to another one of his movies. Um, I think it was because I noticed he directed Bullet, which was uh, a movie I'd heard of as legendary, but I hadn't even seen that yet. So I thought he, he deserved another chance. I ended up watching five of his movies, and um, by the end, he, he'd come from nowhere to become one of my favorite directors. So the two movies that really got him going in the late 60s, one was a, a film called Robbery, which he filmed in yeah, England. A big, a big Tony Stella favorite. It's a great movie. Uh, I just watched it two days in a row. Uh, just earlier this week, I enjoyed, or end of last week, I enjoyed it so much. And after robbery, Steve McQueen actually called him about his next movie, Bullet. And Yates came over for his first Hollywood movie, was Bullet with Steve McQueen. And that set the stage for his legend. That, that car chase is still talked about as like the car chase that defined what could be done in vehicles on film. And it holds up. Fuck yeah. You know, it's, it's almost a cliche to talk about it, but you go back and watch it. It's a cliche because it fucking works. 52 years later, it's like, oh my. I mean, it's, like, it's the love song to the Mustang. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's a, it's a great chase scene. It goes on. It's got a nice kind of slow burn to it as they slowly move through traffic in San Francisco. They're each kind of eyeballing each other. And then all of a sudden they realize there's the cop. Here are the two hitmen, and uh, we gotta we gotta boogie out of here. It's a and long they go, chase. It goes on for like chase. five or six minutes. <laughs> yes, it? it does. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's intense. I, it's funny. I've seen Bullet in its entirety only one time, probably back in like 1997 or 1998 when I was first getting into movies. And we were kind of like, oh, this is pretty cool. It's kind of, you know, like a warm up for a movie like Dirty Harry, which came a few years later. Well, you know, San Francisco's got tons of great cop movies from like, you know, Dirty Harry up through Cobra or whatever, whatever you want to talk about. Cobra. But, yeah. <laughs> but when, when, that, when that scene began, my roommate at the time was a massive car buff. And we were always watching things like Le Mans. He does. He loves Steve McQueen. And right. uh, for people in their in their college years who were probably baked to the gills that that scene just absolutely blew our minds and it, it holds up so damn well and it's funny how all these movies like um fast and the furious they have so many car stunts but if you've got any sort of cheating going on of any kind with cgi whatever it makes you call into question even the stunts that are real and there's something about watching me like bullet where it's all in camera and there's yeah. no trickery that you just get so invested in ways that you don't with like this giant Fast and the Furious franchise. I, I agree. I think it's, uh, and that's one of uh, the hallmarks of Peter Yates that I really grew to appreciate as I watched his films, which is realism and reality. He's very interested in showing life as it is, filming on scene and then capturing a very realistic depiction of people in their settings. 
And that car chase embodies all of that. I mean, you get to go in the driver's seat of both cars, the lead car, the chase car, up over the humps and down the hills in San Francisco. It's almost rhythmic. He gives you like four humps up and down in each car. And then they head out outside the city into the, you know, and really just hit the afterburners and banging off each other. And uh, it's it's like it's it's a work of art. It really is. Yeah, and it seems like he wore a lot of hats before he became a director. I mean, I'm reading here, like, in the early 50s, he was a dubbing assistant, he was a cutter, he was a stage manager, a theater director, and eventually he was an assistant director on a film called uh, The End of the Sixth Happiness, and he directed a ton of TV, like shows like The Saint and Secret Agents, so he definitely spent a ton of time in the trenches before he had a chance to really show off what he had, uh, what, what he could do, but it seems like from bullet onward, the doors were open, and suddenly we see him working with the best actors and the best screenwriters. And really, I mean, for like, he has like a 10, 15-year run there where he's cranking out one killer flick after another. And I saw a lot of these movies for the first time due to your proposition of this because The Deep had been on my to-do list for 20 years. And Dresser, I'd never even heard of, but it just absolutely blew me away. The only one of these I'd seen prior to your pitch was Breaking Away, which my mom and her younger sister were big fans of when, the, when they were younger. So they made me watch it a few times. But even as a kid, when I couldn't have cared less about character-driven dramas, it somehow just got its hooks into me. And there's so many shots from it that had just been seared into my brain. So it was an absolute pleasure to revisit it. But let's start uh, working our way toward the first movie on the to-do list, which was a phenomenal, delightful surprise seeing it for the first time. The Hot Rock from 1972. What is going on with, the, with this particular flick? the hot rock uh, a buddy film and a heist film but i think it's sort of set apart by how funny and smart it is and once again set in new york city it's a new york city movie with a lot of new york city actors led by robert redford handsome devil 
handsome devil that he was and, and a great supporting cast. You had George Seagal and um, what are some of the other Azira names? Azira Mostel from like, you know, the producer. Yes. Yeah, he, he's he's <laughs> funny as hell. So it's, uh, it's an interesting movie, which is Robert Redford is just getting out of jail on some other sort of uh, burglary beefs, and but he's got to get right back in the game as they always do. And he gets together this team, and Zero Mostel, as you said, is uh, it's a unnamed African country. No, no, but Zero Mostel's the actually the the lawyer father. Oh of yeah, I'm the, sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. not Zero Mostel. Yeah, 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 not Zero Mostel. Um, who's who's the guy I'm? Uh, uh, the actor you're thinking of? Moses is Gunn. Yeah, Moses Gunn, who's, who's incredible. I've never seen. Actually, I don't know if I've seen him in anything or not, but. Uh, Oh, he's in Shaft, and he's in Heartbreak Ridge, and he's in Firestarter. So, yeah, so he's got a ton of credits. Yeah, he had an interesting career. Yeah, Zero Mostel has a great role, too. Sorry, I confused those two. But uh, so they're fighting over uh, a, a big diamond that's in a museum in New York, and he's going to hire these guys to get back uh, the diamond. So it becomes, a, it becomes a caper film. It's kind of the opposite of another film we're going to look at, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Um, it's friendly and fun as opposed to deadly serious. Yeah, Friends of Eddie Coyle is grim and yes, like, it is. earthy and grounded. And this is just delightful. And apparently the book is grim, but as William Goldman was writing it, they just somehow kept stumbling into all this comedy. And I was laughing my ass off throughout this movie. Yeah, it's very funny. And um, what's effective about it, I think, is... It's another one of Yates' qualities, which is he loved actors and he loved getting performances out of actors. I was watching uh, a, a behind-the-scenes thing on on this movie, and he mentioned Bullet, and he said, once I got done with Bullet, I knew I wanted to get back to working with actors again. And I don't know if that was a shot at Steve McQueen. Being- <laughs> I love Steve McQueen, but he doesn't necessarily have like the range of like Lawrence, of, Lawrence Olivier or someone like that. Right. And I think he was a movie star and like a big presence. Like he's a guy who fights over a credit spot with Paul Newman in the towering Inferno type of thing. So I think he liked Steve McQueen and he was grateful to Steve McQueen. But Yates at his heart was a director of actors and he loved performances. So they put together this great cast, and he wanted to tell this story once again uh, on on scene in New York. And um, the camaraderie, the character quirks, really make the picture. They're they're each kind of contrast with each other, and um, man, it really it really just fuels the story. Well, what I found so hysterical about it is that most caper movies, whether you're talking about Ocean's Eleven or whatever the case may be, it's all about prepping, 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 planning, 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 doing the right. job. A few things go wrong, and then the movie's over. But the Hot Rock is like three caper movies because they keep having to like yeah. re-steal this this gym, and they when that doesn't go right, they have to like break their friends out of jail, and it's like everything that can go wrong does go wrong, which always leads to yet another obstacle that has to be overcome. And Robert Redford's one; he just has this like pit bull mentality where it's like either this rock's going to beat me or I'm going to beat it. But he is just obsessed <laughs> with finishing this mission. And what really helps drive you from the moment the movie starts is this really groovy soundtrack by the great Quincy Jones, where it's, yes. it's kind of jazzy, it's kind of funky. But you want to talk about early 70s kick-ass scores. I mean, Quincy Jones did a bunch of good scores around this time, like movies like The Getaway. And there's something about these movies in the early 70s where – see a badass assembling a team for a job and it's yeah. such a tired cliche but when done well it reminds you why that cliche became a cliche because it's just so much goddamn fun like all right you need someone who's really good at driving you need someone who's really good at cracking open safe you need someone who's really good at planning and it's like it i just love watching the team come together 
And the fact that they just have so much humor. I mean, Zero Mistel is one of the funniest guys of all time. And like, we have this great scene where they're like, they're about to murder his son because his son told his father where the diamond was when he was like briefly in jail and where he tucked it away. And Zero's right. calling their bluff. And I mean, I was just, I, I was on the uh, the Metro North riding up to uh, Scarsdale with my headphones on, just cracking up with like, you know, around, like, wearing, wearing my mask, but like, you know, probably right, bugging, right. The, bugging the hell out of all the people around me. And then all these weird ingredients, like when they hire a, uh, a hypnotist who's going to tell that bank manager that like their keyword is Afghanistan, Bananistan, and just, anyway, William Goldman, I mean, he'd already written at this point Butch Casting and Sundance Kid, which is one of the all-time great lighthearted buddy movies, and you can feel William Goldman's fingerprints all over this, but I had no idea he wrote this prior to even the movie even starting. When I think William Goldman, I think of movies like The Princess Bride and things like that, but chalk up Hot Rock as yet another badass flick in uh, William Goldman's resume. Yeah, apparently the the book is by a guy named Donald Westlake who did these Dortmunder books, and he had a very dark series of books that he did that was, that was about real serious sort of crime and punishment sort of stuff. And apparently he started to write this Hot Rock, and he couldn't keep it from being funny. So he almost started this new series based on this Dortmunder character, and you can almost tell by the name Dortmunder that it's it's meant to be funny. It's yeah. a weird name. It's like almost makes you laugh when you hear the name, and it's kind of a, a bungling but good-hearted thief. And uh, they 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 did such a good job with it. You were mentioned the the sequence, and it is it's multiple caper movies in one. There's the initial robbery. There's the prison break out. There's the jail break in. There's <laughs> The elevator shaft threat, there's the safe deposit box with the psychic, and uh, that, that's about it. But that's a lot of different break-ins, and yeah, that's yeah, a lot yeah, of different absolutely. moments when you're trying to get this, this rock back. So you really do get multiple movies in one. It doesn't all build to that one moment. It comically hops from moment to moment and as these fast. guys— it's, it's a short movie with a really yes. tight economic structure. Yes, I love that about it. I love that. I love a fast-moving movie that tells the story completely without needing anything else. And uh, that's actually something I was going to bring up about Yates. Yates apparently had either didn't have an ego or was very proficient at suppressing his ego. In a way, I think that may have hurt him. It may be why he's not remembered like, like he should Don be. like a Don Siegel. Or, yeah, I feel like guys like Robert Aldrich and Don Siegel, who are name directors now decades later, who were active at the same time, I think Peter Yates should be mentioned in that same cluster of guys who made these kick-ass tough guy adventure movies and yeah. for whatever reason when people are discussing the big names in that period he just he almost never comes up and it's one of the things where i've been aggressively watching old movies for decades at this point i've been running a podcast about old movies for over 500 episodes and even for me i've been sleeping on peter yates and it's a shame that uh he doesn't have that kind of like asterisk next to his name where people are like, oh, yeah, this is a Peter Yates movie. They say, oh, I want to watch Bullet or I want to watch Breaking Way. But his name mysteriously doesn't ever come up. But I guess maybe oftentimes like certain directors who are like a, a name have like certain stylistic like idiosyncrasies or quirks that they kind of distinguish them. But I feel like if you look pretty hard, you can see a lot of recurring stylistic, I guess, traits and it's worked, but for whatever reason, he's just been neglected, and it's just it's just a mystery to me. Yeah, me too. I think I pitched it on those grounds, which is that the 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 strangely forgotten directors. Oh, I, when I you started... pitched it, I was like, Peter Yates. Why would we do that? I was like, all right, well, whatever. You know, I, I try to keep an open mind. And so, but initially, I was skeptical when you made the pitch. But yeah, you, you totally proved me wrong over the course of as I started watching the movies. 
I would have been skeptical too. I just, but I just kept watching, and every movie was as good as the last, uh, if not better. And he did have, he did fade towards the end. I watched some of his late '80s stuff, and I haven't got through all his early '90s stuff. But his his strength was really the late '60s into like the early to mid '80s was when he was in his prime. Everything kind of beyond that fades a little bit. It's um, just just for all the regular reasons. But he really that window he hit from '67 with robbery to like '83 with the dresser was uh, man, he was on fire. Yeah, well, just as someone who's lived in New York 12 years now, I love getting to see New York like this time capsule where you see the World Trade Center under yeah. construction. And when they're fake, when they they steal this helicopter that the driver claims he can do. He's like, oh, I can drive anything. He's like, I got books on how to, how to build many things, but he's flying it for the first time. And they're right. careening through the skies of New York in the 70s, and they're landing on the wrong building and all that kind of stuff. But it's just, I love seeing New York in the 1970s, especially in the context of these cop flicks or heist flicks or crook flicks, whatever the case may be. It just, in New York in the 70s, it's such a specific personality. And I just love how, like, the, like, the driver, he's always talking about routes and how to shave off time on certain pads and things like that. Like, he's he's funny as hell. And then there's great little bits, like, the guy running the police station, when people are complaining to him about things not working, he's like, well, have you tried jimmying with it a little bit? Or have you tried monkeying with it a little bit? He just, like, he just refuses to believe that things are, aren't, aren't working. And anyway, it just, this movie found the funny at, at every available opportunity from start to finish. And I think a lot of times people don't think of Robert Redford as being a particularly funny guy, but when he's playing the straight man surrounded by all these fucking weirdos, it somehow makes him funny as well. Yeah, it does. I think his, I think his lack of, of, um, his lack of outgoing comedy is actually what makes him funny as funny in this as this, as the straight man, I guess is what you'd call it just yeah. for a, a reference point. But he is funny in his his understatement. That driver you're talking about, Ron Liebman, was uh, he's one of the best parts of the movie. Just the guy who could drive or fly anything. Kind of kind of like a I don't know devil may care attitude. Loves tinkering. Lives with his mom and listens to old like race tracks. You know, when he first <laughs> meet him, he's just listening to engines over the speakers. And um, that that was a that was a great character. That that helicopter ride that you mentioned. I would say this movie, if somehow you watch this movie and didn't like it, I'd be shocked if you didn't like it. But that sequence when they fly through Manhattan in that helicopter with one World Trade Center basically up, the second about three quarters up, and they move through that New York skyline in the 70s and it's that beautiful sunny day. That sequence of shots uh, make the movie worth it on its own, in my opinion. Absolutely. I, I, I watch that with just so much pleasure, just watching that photography in New York at that time. Yeah, it's uh, and I guess... I mean, at the, the very end, I mean, there are a million reminders of why Robert Redford was such a massive icon. But at the very end, soundtrack's kicking in, and we see him strolling down the street, big million-dollar movie movie star smile on his face. And I was like, oh, my God. I, I always forget that Robert Redford was, you know, the Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio all rolled into one yeah. for his period. And, yeah, for his fans out there, and there's still plenty of them out there, I think the Hot Rock has been woefully neglected and forgotten. I never even heard of it. <laughs> until you threw, until you included in the list, and I had a little trouble finding it. it. It's it's not readily available. I found um an illegal download site that had it, and you know I had to get through some some ads and that sort of crap in order to see it. But I immediately downloaded the playlist on YouTube, so I've got the soundtrack ready to go now. So yeah, Hot Rock definitely worthy of rediscovery. Yeah, excellent movie. I I would agree. I would put it up there with some of Robert Redford's best work. I really would. I, I think for just a fun Robert Redford movie where you get to see him in his prime. 
bringing what he brings in his element in New York. I think he was known as kind of a New York actor, came out of that school. And to see him in New York at that time in that role, I think is um, it's it's kind of a rare treat. All right, well, let's move on to one of the movies that had been on my to-do list for a long time because I know a lot of people look at it in the same light as they would something by like Don Siegel, whether you're talking about you know Dirty Harry or whatever the case might be. But this is one of the essential, gritty, hardcore, badass flicks of the 70s starring the great Robert Mitchum, The Friends of Eddie Coyle from 1973. <laughs> I can get your pieces by tomorrow night. I can get you probably six pieces. I got more now, but I promise some of this lot. I don't know as I like that. Buying from the same lot as somebody else. Makes me nervous. Yeah, well, I understand. You don't understand like I understand. I got certain responsibilities. But look, I told you I understand. Did you get my name or didn't you? I got your name. Well, all right. All right, nothing. I wish they had a nickel for every name I got that was all right. Look at that. You know what that is? Your hand. I hope you look closer at those guns than you did at that hand. Look at your own goddamn hand. Yeah? Count your fucking knuckles. All of them? Count as many as you want. As many as you got, I got four more. You know how I got those? I bought some stuff from a man I knew his name. The stuff was traced. The guy I bought it for, he said MCI Walpole for 15 to 25, still in there. But he had some friends. I got an extra set of knuckles. You put your hand in the drawer, and somebody kicks the drawer shut. Hurt like a bastard. Jesus. What makes it hurt worse? What makes it hurt more is knowing what's going to happen to you, you know? There you are. They just come up to you and say, look, you made somebody mad. You made a big mistake, and now there's somebody doing time for it. There's nothing personal in it, you understand, but it just has to be done. Now get your hand out there. You think about not doing it, you know? When I was a kid in Sunday school, this nun, she used to say, stick your hand out. I stick my hand out, whap, she knocked me across the knuckles with a steel edge ruler. So one day I says, when she told me, stick your hand out, I says, no. She whacked me right across the face with the ruler. Same thing. They put your hand in a drawer. Somebody kicks the drawer shut. Ever hear bones breaking? Just like a man snapping a shingle. Hurts like a bastard. I don't know who you've been selling to. But the man tells me you got guns to sell. I need guns. Oh, look, you can't trace these guns. I guarantee that. You better. Neither one of us will be able to shake hands. I think this is, personally, I think this is one of Yates's best three films. It's uh, a story of tough guys on the edge of organized crime in Boston. They're called friends, but friends is sort of an ironic term. They're all looking out for themselves. Uh, and there's a strong twist ending that you may or may not see coming, but it's it's uh, it lands like a sledgehammer at the end of the movie. Uh, filmed on site, again in Boston, they somehow got the great Robert Mitchum to agree to a role that you know, Mitchum, I don't know if he gets enough credit for being uh, as gutsy as he was when you look at a movie like uh, Ryan's Daughter and uh, the David Lean movie and a movie like Friends of Eddie Coyle. Robert Mitchum, who is considered um, a macho 
a macho man and sort of a dominant figure on screen. He would put himself in some vulnerable positions. So here he is playing a down and out figure on the edge of organized crime. And he's really just, he's trying to survive day to day and he's trying to avoid going back to prison for another uh, three to five at the minimum and doing what he has to do to try and get out of that. Yeah, and uh, his accent, I know he spent a lot of time with the uh, dialogue coach trying to get it right, and I think he pulls it off. I mean, there's nothing more annoying than actors on the screen doing a Boston accent, but I think as long as you drop a few R's, then uh, <laughs> that's all you got to do. And it's like, no, it's, it's more complex than that. And also, if you go to Boston, there's different accents all over the city. Like any big city, it's got a whole wide range of accents all over the place. But I just love this movie. The, the world feels so lived in, and it feels so believable in these characters. It, I feel like we're just getting like a little snapshot of this period in their lives, but... Yeah, I, it just absolutely sucked me in, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people throw this on like at two in the morning if they're looking for like a good time because it's it's no. it's, a, it's a little bleak, it's a little grim, and it's like it's kind of got a depressing uh, depiction of the lives these characters lead. But man, you got so many great characters act, actors in there, guys like Peter Boyle, who I always love seeing in action, and yeah, the cast was first rate, and I also like how it doesn't feel the need to try to blow our minds with a bunch of great like over-the-top action set pieces, when it bursts into action, it reminds you, oh, shit, I, I forgot this is the director of Bullet. Like, we get these little these little flares, but this is really a character-driven crime story, and I was just floored by the ending. I don't know if we want to give, it, give away the ending or not, but I did not see that ending coming at all, but it perfectly is in keeping with the rest of the film. Yeah, I think we should save it. it. I know it's it's weird to put a spoiler alert on a film from 1973, but for those who hear this and want to go see it, it's uh, it's worth going to see without knowing how it turns out. But I, I agree with a lot of your description. It's a movie of meetings. It's a movie of specialized language, both Boston and crime language. It's a movie of autumn. It's very bleak. The trees, the leaves are off the trees. They're gray, steel-hard days. Uh, it's, it's a movie of simple cafes and diners. It's not a Hollywood movie. I think we see in Boston, the side of Boston that the, the tourism bureau wouldn't necessarily put <laughs> forward first to get you to the city, but a very realistic side of Boston, these little diners they go into, even at the beginning, I, I was hooked on this movie when that opening scene, he goes and gets that piece of pie and a cup of coffee and he sits down for that little conversation. It turns out to be about handguns that he's trying to get for some 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 guys, some robbery team guys, and um, yeah, Alex so, Rocco and his crew. I, I always love seeing Alex Rocco show up in anything. Whether you're talking about the yeah. Godfather or uh, yes. what the hell was that? Um, uh, was it Detroit? Oh, hang on, I got, I got, it'll it'll kill me if I can't remember the name. Of it. Tarantino put it out on VHS in the late '90s as like a re-release, and it is boom, 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 boom. Boom, Detroit 9000, which is a great okay. Alex Rocco performance from, from the same period. It actually came out the exact same year. So, yeah, I mean, people who like Mo Green, uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle and Detroit 9000 are absolutely worth hunting down. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to watch that one. Yeah, this is another movie where Yates shows his love of actors, not movie stars. People who embody characters from Peter Boyle, uh, Richard Jordan, uh, Stephen Keats. Some of these guys, Joe Santos, you probably remember from uh, Rockford Files. But like Richard Jordan and Stephen Keats, you might most people probably don't know those names. When you see their faces, you'll recognize them from something. Yeah, Stephen Keats especially, but he's brilliant as Jackie Brown. Yeah. But I was like, wait a second, why do I recognize this guy? And I had to, I had to dig deep to find the movies that I that I recognize him from. Right. He, he, yeah. He's got a he's got a, I think kind of a rubber face, and he can kind of shift in and out of who he wants to be. 
Well, I love these movies where they feel like they really have an almost an insider's perspective on low-level organized crime because these these guys are not larger-than-life figures like Tony Montana. Oh. These are kind of you know blue-collar guys cutting corners. But like the Robert Mitchum tells this story about having his hand slammed in a drawer and how he's got an extra set of knuckles now as a result. And right. how he's describing how matter-of-fact his punishment was. And he said, all right, well, th- th- this is what's going to happen now. We're going to put your hand in the drawer. We're going to slam it. And it just it, it's so believable and so authentic. And that's hard to do. And I feel like there's so many movies that make Boston crime feel almost cartoonish, whereas yeah. this feels like the genuine article. Yes, it does. Um, and particularly we get, we get a look at most of two bank robberies and one really thorough look at a bank robbery. And these banks participated in this willingly. I mean, obviously you can't film somewhere where they can't say you can film, but they really, according to Peter Yates's commentary, went above and beyond what they'd asked to make the situation inside the bank on those mornings realistic. So these are, this is not an Ocean's 11 vault robbery. This is a very sort of 8 a.m. suburban Boston guys in masks and guns walk in, but they got a plan. So while, while they were low level and not the center of organized crime, these were professional criminals and they did know exactly what they wanted to do. And Mitchum's character is one who's supplying them with some of their guns. Obviously, they professional criminals dispose of the weapons after they use them for the most part. And so that's kind of where Mitchum's role comes in is, is he feeds these guys. He picks up their weapons for him, makes the transactions. And Stephen Keats is the guy he's buying it from. And Stephen Keats's character is interesting because it's clear he's fairly new to this. He has some connections. It turns out it's like his junkie buddy. And we don't know exactly where he can get these guns from, but he can get grocery sacks full of handguns. <laughs> and he sells them for like 20 bucks a gun. And, and Keats resells them. You know, there's a great bargaining scene in there. But anywhere from like 40 to 80 bucks a gun. So he's not making big money either, although he drives a neon yellow uh, muscle car from the period, which is a little ostentatious for a, a If you're trying to be low-profile, maker. maybe just get a nice, boring brown car like every other boring brown car from the 1970s. Right. I think that speaks a little to his inexperience and his sort of grandiose dreams that aren't likely to come true in, in that field. But he's a very real character, which um, I think this movie is really defined by, as you were talking about, the actors he got and the story he tells. These, are, these feel like the kind of guy you might bump into in line somewhere and uh, apologize quickly. You know, you'd feel yeah. like you bumped into a mean guy. But I also just love watching him in action when he's like trying to figure out like how to sell guns to these kind of crazy like I guess they're like halfway between like a hippie and like a Marxist revolutionary for like yeah. like, like weather underground and we just really get a chance to really explore these guys' lives even though I mean it doesn't have like the length of something like heat but you really get invested in their day to day or Robert Mitchum's relationship with his wife and like one way he's like kind of grabbing her ass she's like oh it's in the morning like leave me alone like you know like, yeah, like there's yeah. all this love and affection but it just once again like, these neighborhoods really come to life and also just the this quiet sense of desperation for Robert Mitchum where he's trying to remain true to his code and not be like yes. a rat or an informant but on the other hand he doesn't ever want to go back to jail ever again but how the assurances that he's given for providing information are so fragile and flimsy and it's like how much will he have to compromise himself before he can actually get something certain and sometimes he'll provide information and it's already become out of date and you really just start to feel for this guy where it's like oh my, like no matter how things work out for him it's not going to end up well whereas we're used to him 
I'm always used to seeing Robert Mitchum playing these these big, bold, brash parts like in Night of the Hunter or right. you know, Farewell, My Lovely or, or um, the original Cape Fear. Like just like this, he's such a ginormous, iconic actor, and we really get to see a more humble side that the aging Robert Mitchum, the the a character whose his life has not really paid a lot of dividends, and it's probably going to meet with failure no matter how, no matter how it ends up in the end. Yeah, yeah, that it's interesting you brought up that. I thought that home scene. When we get to see Mitchum in his modest suburban house with his kids going out to the school bus and he's dragging in a garbage bin, I thought that scene was so well done and so interesting in that movie to make him a real person. He has this quiet suburban life, but he's not the kind of guy who can go to work from nine to five. No. He is a professional criminal, but he wants, but he likes his home life as well. He, lo- You can see he loves his wife, who's... Uh, Who's who's you know if she's your wife you love her but she's not uh, Sophia Loren. Well, she's but not her, like the girl that Alex Rocco has when he introduces Wanda and he's like grabbing her ass and bragging about what a great lady she is like oh she's a spook right. and she's not fond of wearing pants and blah 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 but yeah when he comes right. to meet Rocco Rocco can't keep his hands off his girlfriend and justifiably so she's an absolute knockout but I think one of the reasons the movie feels so authentic and I, I've forgotten that I looked this up I just saw it in my notes but according to the IMDb trivia Alex Rocco was a former member of the notorious Winter Hill gang that operated out of Boston and moreover yeah. Rocco introduced Robert Mitchum to Howie Winter who is the second boss of the Winter Hill gang to help Mitchum research his role as Eddie Coyle so the fact that they actually had ties to this world it's almost like having like a room full of technical consultants making sure that you get everything right yeah, Yates actually talked about that in a commentary on this movie. They did have organized crime figures on the set, and they actually had a guy who was like a teamster. Without giving away the movie, there is there there is uh, there are several, let's say several executions to disguise the intent here. But they wanted the execution to be authentic, and they asked this teamster. Everyone said this guy knows what it's about. And Yates said yeah. this guy kept saying over and over, I've heard this is how it happens. I've heard they do this. I've heard they do that. And they said he got so into the story at one point, he started talking about killing somebody. Oh, and Jesus. he got over, he got done with it. And they were all kind of like wide-eyed looking at this guy, trying to trying to play it cool. And he said, that's just what I heard anyway. You know, <laughs> you know kind of tough guy. And so they, that, they had those people on the set. Yeah, and that's how, but it's like the way your friends and people that you've known for a long time will take you out. Like, they don't just kill you. They wine and dine you. Like, oh, come over to my place. We'll have steak and we'll have wine. We'll go see a hockey game. We'll, like, we'll, the, the, all these wonderful, what beautiful things. They really get your, your guard down. And yeah. it's, um, yeah, when people come to you with open arms and gestures of friendship, that's when you got to really be careful. But apparently the only bit that wasn't authentic in this movie, Peter Boyle really struggled with pouring a, uh, a glass of beer without it foaming over. And I so there's that. a scene where you see him struggling with it, and apparently behind the scenes they had a, a fresh glass of beer, freshly poured, like just out of a, out of frame, so that when he plants the beer in front of Robert Mitchum, he could do so without having to struggle over it. There's an art to pouring a glass of beer, one that uh, Peter Boyle was unable to master. Yeah, I understand he was pretty frustrated about that too. He was trying to learn to pull a draft the right way, and for some reason he couldn't get the head right. He was getting a big foamy glass of beer. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's what I heard. They had a tray of, of correctly poured beers underneath, so... So um, uh, Boyle would do his thing and screw it up, and just underneath he'd grab it when poured the right way and set it on the bar, which is pretty funny. Yeah, but another thing I found so remarkable about this movie is that a lot of the heist scenes or robbery scenes, there's not necessarily that much going on in terms of, like, flash, but there's this incredible sense of tension and suspense where anything goes wrong, 
something horrible is going to happen where like, you see them basically kidnapping bank managers' families, holding them at gunpoint, and then the bank manager has to tell everybody to cooperate and that he's going to you know, basically just do whatever they say. But everything's so still and so tense, and everybody... Like, all these guys, you'll see them like cocking their guns and pointing them at somebody. Like, if you, not that I have a lot of experience holding people at gunpoint, but if you're gonna hold someone at gunpoint, you don't need to have the gun cocked. Like, you can cock it when you need to when you need to shoot it, but don't cock it and then point it because you're begging for something terrible to happen. But all right. that stuff just makes your palms sweat as these crimes are unfolding. Well, one of my one of my um, a key characteristic I'd attribute to Yates and something that I, I would say that I learned from his movies are pacing and a mastery of pacing to build tension. He's he's an absolute master of pace in his movies and pace within scenes to build and release tension. So I'd agree in those in those robberies, there's tremendous tension built up and it's slowly released at times and then at other times escalated. But that holds true throughout his career. He's what whatever pace the movie needs is the pace he gives it, which is why I consider him a, a master of his craft. He did many different movies that needed many different styles and paces. And in my opinion, in his best years, he, he nailed all of them. Well, as you mentioned before, this is one of your favorite movies by Peter Yates. And apparently it's one of his three favorites that he made as well. His three favorites were Breaking Away, The Dresser, and this. And I think yeah. for people who like movies like, um, what was it, The Laughing Policeman with uh, Walter Matthau, like movies like that, like it's a genre that doesn't even really exist anymore. These down and dirty movies that used to star kind of ugly men who were, you know, ah. tough, tough as nails. Right. And the 70s, I guess, is just the great heyday of these character actors playing these ruthless characters. And um, yeah, I, I was thrilled to finally see it. I've been hearing about it for so many years. It absolutely lived up to uh, all the hype. And I think. I'm leaning toward the dresser as my favorite of the movies, but if you want to create like the best first positive impression of the, like, the Peter Yates style of yeah. what I've seen so far, Friends of Eddie Coyle might be my, my, my strongest recommendation. Yeah, there's, there's one last thing I'll add on that, and you mentioned that they do go to a Boston Bruins hockey game, and this goes back to Peter Yates's, um his fondness for reality and his fondness for shooting on scene. They, over two nights, they shot at a Boston Bruins game in the old Boston Garden. They had different sets of cameras for different days and they obviously had to dub the sound afterwards because the crowd noise was too loud. But for, for anybody who loves sport and for anybody who loves arenas like I do, this was an absolute pleasure. The Boston Garden was torn down when I was a child. I never got to see the Celtics or the Bruins there. And Bobby Orr, the legendary hockey player, retired before I was born. So not only do you get to go inside the Boston Garden for a hockey game against the Blackhawks, you get to see the great Bobby Orr skating on the ice on a film camera that's held down around the glass. You actually get to see number four take a couple strides on the ice. For me, when that came on, I had no idea that was coming. It like uh, it gave me goosebumps. You're like, fuck yeah! Well, there's I, a ne great, I never there's knew it was coming. Cameo in that scene, the kid who's uh, working with uh, with Peter Boyle's character. As, he, as soon as he entered the frame, I was like, wait a second. I recognize this guy. Well, who the hell is this guy? But yeah. actor Michael McCleary, he's one of the dirty cops in LA Confidential. And like, I've seen LA Confidential oh, a, th he a is, thousand isn't times. He? Yes, and, he is. Uh, yeah, but uh, as soon as I was like, but he looks the exact same like 25 years later in LA Confidential. Just miniaturized. Yeah. And so, but I, I couldn't believe that he, and he only, I think he only did like seven or eight movies throughout his career. It's like, all right, well, if you start with Friends of Eddie Coyle and finish with LA Confidential. That that's a career I, I totally approve. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I recognize him too. Uh, I'm glad you pointed that out. I didn't do the I didn't take the time to figure out what I knew him from. But absolutely, the second he came on the screen, 
he's got that kind of weaselly look with the kind of greasy hair and stuff. And I, was, I knew I knew him, but that's that's great to know. I love LA Confidential. Yeah, he, he never changed his style, but it's a very striking look. Well, this movie, along with a couple others, really starts opening some doors for Peter Yates' career where he starts becoming pretty big hot commodity and you know a well-known director and right around this time there was a little movie called jaws by peter benchley which people really enjoyed and so everybody wanted to make more of his books into movies and so suddenly you get this giant commercial opportunity for peter yates the deep from the number one bestseller by the author of jaws this is the deep it begins in bermuda with the adventure and romance of an island vacation, a fantastic opportunity for two young lovers to get away from it all. Was it beginner's luck to discover a sunken wreck in less than 60 feet of water? Where'd you get this exactly? Was it coincidence that there were two treasures, one of priceless jewels, the other more valuable than that. You must be the young couple who found that bottle this afternoon. It certainly didn't look like anything. We didn't like find it. any bottle. The danger and excitement of treasure worth killing for. <laughs> the adventure and intrigue of a secret worth dying for. She hasn't got it. If his tongue moves again, cut it. Go upstairs, pack go home. I'm going down there. And you're going to have to blow me up too. As you please, boy. And beneath it all is the terror of the deep. Robert Shaw. I'm going to signal you and I'm going to fire this fuse. Now after that, I don't care if you found the Holy Grail itself. You've only got three minutes. Jacqueline Bissett. Oh, my God. Nick Nolte. Come on, Trace. All right, Trace, what the hell's going on? Louis Gossett. You forced me to take what you would not let me pay for. And Eli Wallach. 98,000 ampules. David, it's morphine. Morphine! I wouldn't say it's as good as Jaws, but it has its own attributes to uh, that can lure people in. But it's incredible seeing this kind of character-driven, authentic, gritty director doing what amounts to like this giant adventure film with like shipwrecks and drugs and lost treasure and beautiful women. And it, it, this one it almost seems the most unusual in comparison to the rest of the films that we'll be discussing. But The Deep 
people don't know, it basically used Jacqueline Bissett's lovely physique as part of the marketing and it very successfully and it opens with probably the best 10 minute love song to Jacqueline Bissett that will ever be on film as she goes scuba diving in a t-shirt for this lengthy passage and uh, yeah, I'd never seen The Deep, it had been on my to-do list since I was a kid basically, it was a great poster and yeah. My, yeah, my favorite bit is that opening 10 minutes but yeah, it, it was fun to finally get uh, introduced to The Deep yeah, the opening sequence is is a beautiful thing, and it, it kind of introduces you to a, it's kind of a magical atmosphere and kind of a dangerous world, but also brought back to reality by kind of the hardness of what's happening. So it's an it, it is a departure for Yates, which is speaks to his versatility. I was talking about before made many kinds of movies, many ways. You know, he challenged himself. I consider him a, a true artist in this way because he always wanted to do something different, and he avoided easy repetition both in terms of how he shot movies and the types of movies he shot and the way he did it. So this movie is very different. We're set in tropical waters. Um, it's, it's a couple on vacation who love to die for its own sake, but stumble across what, in my opinion, is a very interesting treasure. Um, it wasn't just a treasure. It was the fact that they found... We, had, we found out there, there were two shipwrecks. We had a World War II ship go down, which was full of, of not only weapons, but morphine vials, which the criminals on the island would like to turn into heroin and sell in the United States. But they find that below that World War II ship was an old Spanish galleon that had secretly set sail with a special treasure back in the olden days and had been wrecked in a hurricane. And each sort of sat on the edge of the abyss, which is where the movie got its title from. It falls off that cliff and the ocean has no bottom. So it's kind of a race to get this treasure. And, and again, I mean, the great Robert Shaw as the uh, the sort of legendary diver that's on the hysterical island. hysterical is that like he just done Jaws, same yeah. author. And they're like, well, right, right. we need another kind of surly British dude who kind of talks like a pirate. Let's bring him right. back. And he he apparently, without reading the script, without reading the book, he, he agreed. Suddenly he's like, yes, sign me up. I'm, I'll gladly do this. But he he's incredible. In it. But as I was watching this, I kept thinking to myself, there's so much about this. It feels almost like a warm-up for a James Bond film, like For Your Eyes Only, with all those great scuba diving sequences. You even had yes. John Barry doing the music. And as I was watching the film, I kept thinking, Peter Yates probably would have knocked a Bond film out of the park if he'd been given a chance oh, to do man. something like Spy Who Loved Me or Moonraker or For Your Eyes Only. But I feel like he had the chops. He clearly could handle action with like the car chases from, from Bullet. It's, yep. a, I guess I feel this great sense of loss that he never got his window, but the closest we'll probably get is the deep. And those underwater action sequences when they're fighting people and they're fighting sea monsters, not sea monsters, but fighting like, you know, uh, moray eels and, you know, fighting uh, fighting the bad guys. I was like, God damn, you yeah. put Roger Moore in here. It feels like a vintage 70s era Bond flick. Yeah, that's a great point. I uh, as, as soon as you said that, I couldn't agree more. That It is sad that he didn't get direct a Bond film. I'm a Bond uh, aficionado, a Bond lover. And uh, even the bad Bonds, I love. Yeah, I, I, he, I, will, I will watch any Bond film, even if it's The World Is Not Enough. <laughs> yeah, and that's saying something. Yeah, that movie is wretched, but, uh, you know, nonetheless, it, it, it is in the canon of James Bond. <laughs> he he could have he done a great Bond movie. Another interesting thing is this, in this movie, is um, Yates made this crew and actors dive this is another in-camera spectacle um i watched uh, uh, a behind the scenes and an explainer on the movie robert shaw actually narrated it 
There were 9,885 total dives making this movie in waters between 30 to 150 feet deep, 151 days of shooting for the movie. And Robert Shaw said it was cold, it was frightening, it was dangerous. Yeah, it's like the, and, it's the abyss 10 years before the abyss. Yes, yes. And uh, the fact that it actually is those actors underwater, it's not stunt doubles. Uh, everything, again, is in camera. They did have to build a set to shoot some of this stuff, uh, but it was, an, uh, it was a real underwater set in the Atlantic Ocean, so it, was, it wasn't really faking anything. Really, really, Astro, this is, this is one of those movies that I, it does have a great narrative that I enjoy, a story I enjoy watching, but this is an atmospheric movie to me. Yeah. I, 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 mean, like, I think that in terms of like the text, I'm less impressed than I am with the feeling underwater, the sense of mystery, the sense of danger. And yes. when things start to go wrong, they go horribly wrong. I mean, there's a brilliant stunt early on where a stunt woman actually had her shoulder dislocated, but uh, Jacqueline Bissett's character is reaching under something. Oh, and something yeah, yeah. grabs her and pulls her. And as we learn later on, it's this enormous fucking moray eel. But the shot about makes your eyeballs pop out of your head because it's there, it's real, it's in camera, and you see that arm get pulled under, and you feel this enormous sense of panic. Like, she yeah. is so fucked. And then it pulls a second time. I'm sure the stunt person wasn't so psyched to have their uh, their shoulder <laughs> dislocated, but goddamn, when you see the, the shot on screen, it, yeah. it really works. Yeah, it, it, was all, it was all worth it. Every, everything they put into it was definitely worth it. So that that atmosphere is you talk about a Bond movie and closest to yeah I would I would say that's a fairly apt description particularly the sort of um, trouble in paradise element to it which is a beautiful uh, tropical that that beautiful water and out in the lightly rolling surf and diving and scuba diving and diving wrecks and looking for treasure in a fun way and having it turn dark like this. Um, I watched, this is one of those movies that you could pop on to fall asleep to without being insulting about, about saying that it's very blue. Um, that first 10 minutes might, might, might wake me up. It's, uh, my, my, my one yeah. note as I was watching it, I, yeah. I, I wrote this, I said, um, I said, LOL, nothing but titties. D uh, how am I supposed to watch this movie? Because she quite <laughs> literally, I mean, she's a stunningly beautiful actress and she's, she's just got yep. this transparent t-shirt on and the producer was it uh peter goober yes he it was said, peter goober yeah peter goober said uh, that t-shirt made me a rich man but he was pretty early <laughs> in, his, in his career as a producer <laughs> yeah he was he she was, was already a sex symbol but this totally solidified her her role as one of the great sexual icons of that decade but she and she'd worked with peter yates before in uh in bullets Bullet. so they, yeah, they yeah. Were, they were old friends but she brings a touch of class. I like the fact that like, Nick Nolte's uh, this kind of surly guy in, in so many ways. But this is young Nick Nolte. I mean, it's like before the drugs and the booze start to right. wreak havoc on his face. And he's, you know, he's right. as close to beautiful as he was ever going to be. But right. having uh, Robert Shaw and Jacqueline Bissett in there just brings the, the film a, a touch of class. Yeah, it really does. I'm, uh, yeah, thank you to Jacqueline Bissett for being willing to film that scene and all she did for cinema with that. It's, it's a beautiful beginning to the movie. And it's interesting, too, because it's a great contrast to the very scary moments you talked about because that came immediately after what we find out is an eel grabbed her underwater i mean she gave the emergency signal she pulled her mask and let the bubbles go so nick nolte could come find her they got to the surface and she was terrified and yeah she hops up on the back of that boat deck and she was diving in a white t-shirt and it's um it's the same as being naked when you dive in a white t-shirt <laughs> exactly and i love that by contrast when robert shaw goes diving he basically puts on like a white button down and khaki pants and loafers. He's like, all right, I'm ready to go diving. Like I was like, you're not going to put on like 
anything that might make it easier like to go like swimming underwater. But Robert Shaw, is so, he's one of these guys where he spends his evenings drinking rum and is like, it's not drinking, it's surviving. And right. uh, but anytime he goes underwater, it's just like he like walked out of like a hardware store and was like, fuck it. But <laughs> give me my mask, I'm going under. But it, it works for the character. Yeah, he dives in his Bermuda shorts and like his polo shirt. He just pulls a mask on and puts on the flippers and, and heads down. But yeah. that's perfect. It's perfect for his character kind of living out in the whatever you could call the country of that island he's an expert on treasures and he's he's dove and got a lot of stuff i mean the the mystery and magic of diving he obviously loves it but it's long gone for him there's there's no preparation diving is a mean to an end and had had uh nolte and Bissett not found the interesting things they'd found and attracted the attention they attracted he wouldn't have gone out diving again yeah he basically that rough character basically decides that he likes these two, that there's something inherently decent and honest about him, and he's going to sort of help them finish this project. Well, we haven't mentioned Lou Gossett Jr. yet, who is, as a child, oh, one of my yeah. favorite actors. Like, I would watch him in things like Iron Eagle and Enemy Mine <laughs> and all that stuff. But this is long before, like, Officer and Gentleman. This is, he, at this point, he's just Louis Gossett. He wasn't Lou Gossett Jr. yet. And, right. uh, yeah, he plays a local crime warlord, warlord but he just is nothing better than a nice villain who, like, has, makes no apologies. And he just leans into it all the way, and he's got these scary-ass henchmen. He has one henchman who looks like he's lived off nothing but, like, you know, like horse meat and steroids from the time he was born. He's this giant, huge human being, just built like a tank. And right. they, 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 I mean, once again, they could have fit right into a James Bond film like uh, Live and Let Die. I mean, like they, but they make, they make great kind of piratey, drug dealing antagonists for the film. And this is not just all fun and games. It's going to scuba diving. I mean, people start turning up dead and breaking each other's necks and lots of violence and harpoons through legs and fighting moray eels. And yeah, they, they def- the film doesn't hold back on the violence. I guess if people see the author's name and they're expecting another Jaws, there's not a Jaws-level threat. But this film has so many other things to offer. And when it comes to other films by that same author, he did a terrible film which we discussed on this uh, podcast before. Hang on one sec. It's called, I think, The Island, Peter Benchley, or is it Benchley or Benchley? I, I never quite know the correct pronunciation. I think Benchley. Benchley. I believe. But he yeah. also did The Island, which was turned into a movie by Michael Ritchie. And much like Peter Yates, Michael Ritchie's kind of a forgotten director, in spite of the fact that he did things like The Bad News Bear. So Kevin Marr came on. We did a giant Michael Ritchie episode where we tackled The Island. And I think The Island is pretty much unwatchable so of all the benchley films i think jaws is the best but i think yeah. the deep, deep's a close second yeah lou gossett was this is apparently the first time he played the heavy and the bad guy and uh lou gossett has a very kind of like megawatt face and smile i mean he's a very oh, he's incredibly striking yeah he's kind of crazy striking yeah. and he's he's glowy and uh he he can play like the officers he has the leadership roles you talk about like iron eagle and officer and a gentleman and a guy who you'd kind of want to emulate and take advice from but i think he does a great job as this really for for the island in the situation a debonair bad man and you bring up you bring up live and let die even to the point that they want to sell the morphine turned heroin in the Haitian out of the Haitian communities in New York, so there there is there is more you know selling drugs in New York from the coming up from the Caribbean islands is is also like live and let die, but his presence is he's one of these guys who wants to be mean and violent last of all, and he'll use charm first like when he meets them at the restaurant and sits down and says. I heard you found something wonderful. I collect oh, like, these. He's a, he's a Bond villain. May I perhaps villain. have yeah. a look? Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. 
and and they slowly, not so slowly, but over the next few days, realize that this is this is not the friend. And Nick Nolte had an idea about it. He kind of shooed him away from the table. He's like, can you believe that? Phony. Yeah. And Bassett thought, well, maybe he just wanted our vial. And, and Nolte turned out to be right. He was not who he presented himself as. But yeah, his little squad of uh, killers on the island and the ruthlessness with which they're willing to go after these people to the point that when they weren't sure what they were doing, he sent his boat out to chum the waters for sharks. That's a great scene. That's probably for me, like the big action set piece where they just basically throw as much blood and guts in the water as possible. And yeah. they, I mean, this is not CGI. They fucking just unleash a shitload of sharks yes. to shoot the scene. And yes. I, I read somewhere, yeah, it said took um, 720 dives to do, shoot this pack of gray sharks and yeah. 1,080 hours to shoot. And they shot the scene off the uh, Great Barrier Reef in Australia because yep, it couldn't yep. be duplicated anywhere else in the world. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I watched a video on the exact same thing. And it was, it's, um, it's a tribute to Yates and this crew, obviously, but doing what had to be done to make it right. I mean, look at those numbers and hours. You just reel off. What a ridiculous, that scene in the movie is what, seven, eight minutes at the most. I mean, they gave so much time to make that scene happen, but look what they got in the end. It's one of the most realistic, one of the most frightening, one of the most menacing scenes with sharks, real sharks ever filmed from getting tangled up in the dive line. Yeah. Those to, shots are great. Yeah. And the sharks oh, are man. not pleased to be tangled up. No, if they go absolutely berserk, like the wild, dinosaur killer animals that they are and it, it's fantastic to watch yeah and i guess they knew they this thing had enormous amount of potential because not only had jaws been a big hit but this novel when it was published it stayed on the bestseller list for six months i think maybe yeah. at the top of the bestseller list and then the and their, and their faith was rewarded the movie was the ninth highest grossing film in 1977 and this is a year that included movies like star wars smoking the band yeah. so it was a nice big juicy commercial success and it just shows that peter yates versatile director he could give you something like bullet or the deep or he can give you a character driven drama like the dresser he uh, he could wear a lot of hats and had a lot of range as a storyteller yeah he he definitely did another thing and this will this will come back with yates it's in mostly it's in most of his movies i, I like i think of him as challenging but not incoherent meaning his stories are there everything is in the pictures or in the dialogue but you have to listen for it and you have to look for it they're not simplistic narratives but nor when you get to the end will you find they add up to nothing. They all come together into a, into a, the puzzle comes together and a coherent picture is formed, but they're unapologetically intelligent as well. And even in a movie like this with the deep, which, which could have been a lot of eye candy and could have been a lot of um, just spectacle for its own sake, there is a very coherent and cogent narrative driving this movie from beginning to end. Well, I'm looking at here. Apparently, the directors that were considered to direct were John Boardman, who had obviously done uh, Deliverance in the 1970s, Steven Spielberg, and who obviously done Jaws, John Frankenheimer, who around this time would be doing things like Black Sunday, but previously done things like, you know, uh, Seconds and Mentoring Candidate. But the fact that Peter Yates would be considered slightly below them shows where his commercial standing was in Hollywood at the time. And apparently, on the basis of Bullet and Murphy's War from 1971, he was considered a reliable enough director to take charge. And obviously their faith was rewarded because the film did just fine. So I would think, but I would say probably of the five movies we're discussing today, 
This I would rank below, but because it is such a big, commercial, accessible film, I'm thrilled that it got included just because it shows the variety of types of uh, material that he could tackle. Yeah, I would say that's that's why I included it, because when you look at it with the list of the rest of the movies we, we have and are going to talk about, it stands out as something different. So I think it is representative of his versatility and his ability to make a good movie out of uh, really really any material when he was in his prime. Excellent. How about a little music? Katarina! 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 Peter Yates film I ever saw as I mentioned before I saw this a couple times as a kid because my mom and my aunt were such massive fans breaking away from 1979 which might actually be maybe the first character driven drama that I ever saw but it was on HBO a ton when I was a little guy but man this is a movie that's got nothing but heart and I, I love it dearly so for people who have not necessarily seen this in a long time or have never heard of it what is the premise of breaking away yeah the premise this turns into kind of a, a special movie out of nowhere i'd say it's a film about friends in a forgotten midwestern city and their simple dreams and bleak lives is kind of how i describe it but um it's so much better than that it's one of these movies where the the sum is greater than the parts so it's uh, a group of kids who went to high school together they're just out of high school 
They live right outside Bloomington, Indiana, which is where the University of Indiana is. But these kids have no aspirations for college, and they have no real vision of their future. And they're each kind of contemplating growing older in this town and becoming grumpy old men or, or leaving to find work somewhere, some menial job of some kind. And then one friend who's sort of going through his, I don't know what he's going through, a, a, a mass delusion of some kind, but he wants to become an Italian bike racer. <laughs> And I don't mean race bikes in Italy. I mean, he wants to become an Italian and be a bike racer. So he's got two things going, and he becomes, for a time, quite the eccentric until he comes back to Earth. Uh, absolutely. And it's a funny thing where, when I think of Breaking Away, I think it's just uh, as a pure character-driven drama. But for a lot of sports nuts, this frequently makes the top ten list of best sports films ever made. And I never even thought, I was like, whoa, but yeah, you're right. It is. I mean, for cyclists, goddamn, this is... This is their Citizen Kane. I mean, this is like, this is the, the cycling movie. And cycling is such a massive part of the movie. But I guess for me, because the, the characters are so well defined and there's so much great dialogue and such incredible atmosphere in the city, I, I feel like it transcends the, the, the sports genre. But if people want to praise it as a top 10 sports movie to attract more eyeballs to it, by all means, go to it. Yeah, I agree with that. And when you talk about it being a great sports movie, I think. You, you have to once again tip your hats to Yates and his level of authenticity because he didn't take B-roll of bike races or old footage of bike races or some suggested that people rode bikes. This is some of the great bicycle racing footage that you'll find anywhere from training on the interstate when the, when the trucker sort of joins in. Oh, it's so cool. That, that's the magical dance sequence of the movie. It's a beautiful scene. I absolutely love that. And then the Italians actually come to town and there's a real race. And he gets a dose of reality when he finds out these Italians are jerks. And yeah, they and that they're care not less about that impressed by the fact that he knows how to speak Italian. He's like, ah, oh, la, 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 la. And they're like, all right, fuck you. I'm going to dismantle your bike while we're traveling at 70 miles an hour. <laughs> right. He basically gives him an Italian curse word and uh, shoves a pole in his spokes. Yeah. So oh, it's quite ruthless. All of his illusions get destroyed. But man, I guess what really got me as a kid were these scenes where it's just buddies going out into the woods and going yeah. to the quarry hole and going diving. And by the time I was 19, I actually did get a chance to go quarry diving a few times at this quarry outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. And one time I jumped off in a state of altered consciousness, landed in a bad way, and I bruised my left testicle so completely that I couldn't walk. Well, at least I couldn't walk well <laughs> for a couple of weeks. It felt like a hand grenade going off in my stomach, but I was having all these dreams of breaking away. But you've got right. Jackie Earl Haley, Daniel Stern, Dennis Quaid, and all these characters singing country songs and sunbathing and smoking cigarettes and just chilling and hanging out. They got nothing to do, and they're just wasting time together. But it's like this magical place that they've discovered. And, of course, they don't like it when the, uh, the local college kids come out and kind of kill their buzz by uh, showing off all their superior diving and swimming skills. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Sometimes foreign directors come into a country and somehow nail a perspective that a, a, a more local director might have trouble distinguishing sort of the forest from the trees. And, and what I mean is he got at a sort of class distinction in the Midwest that most people probably don't think about. These are two towns close to each other. For anybody anywhere else, this is Bloomington, Indiana and, you know, bumfuck Indiana. Neither of them makes much of a difference. But to these people, the people from Bloomington, the college kids who are coming in and out, I mean, they had, they call them, they call the country folk cutters, yeah, which is kind of a vicious nickname. I mean, I, you wouldn't want to be called a cutter, particularly with its connotations now. 
But it was basically, and I remember a girl in the movie asked her time, what's a cutter? And he basically says, oh, townies or town folk or whatever. But just meaning the the, the lesser people. They work the blue-collar jobs. They're yeah. not going to college. And They're once not upon a time, the they quite literally were cutting the stone out of that quarry hole to, to build the environment. Right. The, yeah, cutting the quarry. That's yeah, I mean, like point. the father um, of the biker, he's a cutter. And he, for him, it's a, he's proud of it. He's like, he's like you're not a cutter. I'm a cutter. Like, like, right, right. He's, take, he's taking ownership of it because he actually, starting age 19, he, he loved that job. Now he sells used cars and it causes him all kinds of anxiety. <laughs> yeah, there's that great scene when he takes his son. Uh, I think it's when he's finding out about his SAT scores or his college entrance exam scores. And it turns out his son is smart enough to go to college if he wants to. But they're sitting outside that building on the campus and he starts patting the stone and he says, I don't feel like this belongs to them and not me. I built this building. See these stones? I cut them. Yeah. So meaning I'm all these kids who come and go and they think there's something better than us. I built the building that makes them feel so special. So I have my own pride and you need to find your pride. And that's kind of what the movie is about is each of these guys trying to find out what they can be proud of and what they can live their lives for. And, and some with more success than others, like Dennis Quaid's character and by the way, Dennis Quaid looks like he's been drinking like a chimp juice or a, was a chimp at this time. Yeah, or, he is shredded in this. He's an athletic, beautiful young man. And this is like before Dreamscape and before like any of his big movies. But he is a he's in the prime of life. Just yeah, he is a, a virile young dude. I had no idea Dennis Quaid was ever shredded quite like that. I mean, he, he looks like he'd be a professional fighter or a professional athlete. And it's interesting that his character was the hot shot high school quarterback. And at one scene, they, and this was a beautiful thing too, is again, as a sports fan and Yates's authenticity, they go to Memorial Stadium in Bloomington, Indiana, and we actually kind of watch Indiana football practice from a distance. And they're sitting up on a hill looking down, and Dennis Quaid, very depressed, is talking about every year some new young hotshot kid's going to be here. And uh, I was a quarterback once. Why can't that be me? You know, I used to think I was a really great quarterback in high school. Still think so too. Can't even bring myself to light a cigarette because I keep thinking I gotta stay in shape. You know what really gets me though? I mean, here I am, I gotta live in this stinking town, and I gotta read in the newspapers about some hot shot kid, new star of the college team. Every year is going to be a new one. Every year is never going to be me. I'm just going to be Mike. 20-year-old Mike. 30-year-old Mike. Oh, mean old man, Mike. These college kids out here, they're never going to get old. They're out of shape. Because new ones come along every year. They're going to keep calling us cutters. For them is just a dirty word. For me, it's just something else I never got a chance to be. Like, there's always going to be a new one, and every year it's not going to be me. And it's right. one of the most moving, one of the most moving dramatic scenes in the entire movie. And you really get to see, all right, 
this guy's gonna be a fucking movie star. I mean, I was a huge, huge Dennis Quaid fan as a kid. He just kept popping up in so many movies that, for whatever reason, were like tailor made for my tastes and preferences. Whether you're talking about inner space or whatever the case might be, but yeah, yeah. this is when he's just getting started. But yeah, Daniel Stern, he's really good. I mean, the, I don't know. Oh, he's so funny. They did such a good job. And Jackie Earl Haley had obviously already been in. Um, uh, oh, what the hell's that baseball? Movie? I just mentioned it like five seconds ago. The Bad, Bad News, News Bears. Bears. Yeah, yep. so he'd already kind of made a name for himself, but there's a lot of undiscovered talent popping up in this. But I, I, I never ceased to howl watching the compare and contrast between Dennis Christopher's character and his father. And his father is just bewildered by the Italian and like the the being called Papa and everything, and like the way he's always talking about how he wants to kill his son like he's bragging to his wife he's like oh, i should have hit him when i had the chance he'd be dead now no more worries <laughs> he, just, he, he just is totally bewildered with what to do with his son where he sees him shaving his legs in the bathroom such an incredible study in like uh i guess generational divides and like the, their right. different tastes and preferences but then we get this really beautiful scene later on in the movie where the kid is serenading this uh, lovely lovely girl who's a college girl and at home, we see that the father and the mother are listening to the opera and right. getting it on and having like the most like romantic night of their lives. And yeah, this movie, I think it's one of the reasons why I don't call it a sports movie because it does so many other things. There's yeah. really like transcendent magical filmmaking going on. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. That father son relationship, it was it's it's almost the primary story, but not quite. It's just below the primary story. And they do use that to advance a bunch of themes in the movies. Like you said, I love that contrast when he gets Daniel Stern to, to stroke the guitar and he serenades a, the, the young college woman in the window and at home they're having this lovely night. And it's Italian opera, which he brought into their home, which the father claims he hates, but the mother is open-minded to it. And she plays it and they have this wonderful night. But one of the funny things about the father-son relationship is his father's actually upset to see his son this happy at this age. Because he was in the quarry, he was miserable. One of his lines is actually, let him be tired and miserable like I was at 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, he wants to see him come home every day at the end of work and be absolutely miserable and prepare for a life of misery where this son has gone Don Quixote. He's, he's dreaming of the bigger life as an Italian bicycle racer tilting at those windmills yeah and like he when he goes to work for his father his father's delighted at the end of every day he's too beat to do anything he's like oh but god the father i still gotta train and blah 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 but let me see he finally his father kind of starts to get on board and you know we see him training in the rain and like the stationary bike at the drive at right. the car dealership and things like that and uh, i just love watching the father getting so exasperated where he to the point where he nearly kills himself with stress when these people come back for a right. refund <laughs> and he ends up having a nightmare he's like oh, i had a dream where everybody was kept coming back for a refund funds and you kept telling them yes <laughs> just, right there's so much fucking humor and then like with every great sports movie you've got the your your triumph over tragedy you know little dog taking on the big dog when after a, a fight with all the college kids the cutters get a chance to compete in this big ass race and even then like you know he, he you know, gets cut up and he has like he has some problems and it's just it's a very uplifting heartwarming story and there's no real moment this entire movie where you're going to feel a lot of like deep anxiety or stress or tension it's just it's a very moving snapshot of, of a very quiet kind of lifestyle for all these characters but after having seen it a couple times now it's just incredible to me just how profoundly moving it is at the end and what a giant smile it puts on your face yeah it really does you said it was all heart and that's that's right it just it makes you it makes you feel good in a very certain way like i don't know people 
I don't know what it is. Family, a family coming together and understanding each other, friends understanding each other, and sort of uh, just an implied optimism about the future, which is in a very American sort of way, which is this their very poor, untrained bicycle team that they enter in this race does well because they have one great rider yep. who, who, is, who is willing to put it on the line, which is really kind of an American story, which is the underdog can win. It's the 1980 Olympics, USA over Soviets, you know, on a, on a smaller sort of scale. So it's the, the optimism at the end is, is wonderful. And that bike race at the end, when they say a sports movie or a bike racing movie, man, they go through most, they must go through 50 laps in this movie and they're all exciting. You know, there's, there's back and forth, there's lead changes, there's crashes, there's swapping riders. It's very exciting. Yeah, I felt this deep swell of pity for Daniel Stern's character in the end because they win. Everybody's back slapping him and hugging him and so on and so forth. And you get this very beautiful little moment where Daniel Stern's character is just standing there awkwardly, kind of looking around because he doesn't have anybody there to cheer him on. He doesn't have a girlfriend, right. doesn't have a, like a mother or a father. And even in Triumph, the movie still manages to really tug on your heart. And it's like, oh my God, that poor guy. Like he's just, he's a big, lovable geek and he's got his friends, but he's got no one there to kind of, to, to, to have his back. But then it just, it, but it, it passes very quickly, but it's just a great little moment. And I love how at the very end of the movie, he's gone from Italian to French because he's found some French stick he likes. And this, his father does that classic double take as the son's like, bonjour, papa. So they yeah, ride by exactly. each other. <laughs> and he's just horrified. He's having to start this cultural exchange all over again. Yeah, here we go again. I, I love Daniel Stern's character in this movie because he does he does play that sort of bleak, hopeless geek who's at heart a very happy person, basically. But the loneliness does affect him in certain ways. He's got so many funny lines, though. Uh, Dennis Quaid's older brother is a cop in the town. Yeah. And he's, he's trying it's to the keep... the cop from Beverly Hills Cop. He's one of the yeah. cops that Eddie Murphy works with. Exactly. And he's trying to keep his brother out of trouble and keep the tension down between the cutters and the college kids. But it's so funny. One time he walks up and he knows he knows stuff's been going on. And uh, the cop brother basically asks the guys, he's like, you know, what's up with you guys? How are you doing? And Daniel Stern says, well, we're a little concerned about developments in the Middle East. But other than that, we're OK. Yeah. Which is a hilarious line because nobody in that town thinks about the Middle East. Nobody <laughs> in that town thinks outside of their own town. But the idea that those guys would be sitting there thinking about the trouble in the Middle East and the way he delivers it is a very funny line. Yeah, it, it really captures those kind of endless summers where I guess the, the main character has been given a year to kind of find himself before he has to really start his life. But they're like, you know, Jackie Earl Haley, he's falling in love and he's trying to get his life going. But of course, he shows up for his first day on the job and they give him so much grief for being a couple minutes late that when he's asked to punch the clock, he quite literally punches the clock and they drive on <laughs> that. And so, yeah, they're like, I guess every every decade will have a few great movies that capture that late high school, early college age or the, yeah. the coming of age story. And for the seventies, you could say, you know, um, something like American Graffiti or but I think Breaking Away definitely is in that conversation for one of those great coming of age dramas of that decade. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that's a trickier proposition than people give it credit for because these can easily become kiddie movies that mean nothing. And they're out of style the, the second the reel ends. It's, it's difficult to give stories of this age a timeless quality where you can always go back and they, they boot back up and you feel like you're back there and you remember those moments and the lessons learned and the friendships had and lost and, and all of that stuff. It's trickier to make durable than I think people give it credit for. And this movie, in my opinion, is very durable. I think people in 20 years still will be able to watch that and recognize high school life and uh, 
all the things that, that went around with it and, and figuring out what you're going to do as an adult. What's crazy transition. is this story started out as two separate scripts. Originally, uh, Stephen Tessich, if I'm saying that correctly, he wrote one screenplay called The Cutters, which is about town and quarry workers, while the other was called The Eagle of Naptown, which is about the Little 500 bike race. And just in a stroke of genius, they just mushed them together. And I know a, a, a similar thing happened in the reverse with Darren Aronofsky when he was going to do Black Swan and The Wrestler. Originally, that was one movie where oh, wow. a, a ballet dancer and a wrestler fall in love. And he's like, you know what? This is two movies, and he ripped it apart into two different things. So sometimes, it's, as a writer, it's good if you really are willing to question your assumptions, start it from scratch, do a page one rewrite, yank a story into two, or take two and collide them into one, but you get this perfect harmony. Of, I mean, it works really well as the bike race movie, and it works really well as the quarry worker movie, but it works even better, the fact that it's two at the same time. Yeah, that was a stroke of genius, whoever, whoever decided to do that and wherever that that uh, motivation came from absolutely yeah apparently even bob fossey was considered as a, an early like 10 years earlier bob fossey was thinking about directing this so it had been shopped around for a long time but i think it uh bob fossey has many admirable qualities as a director with movies like um like all that jazz but he's got right. a very different stylistic sensibility i mean i don't know if people voguing would have been like you know appropriate <laughs> in this movie or people taking speed and making love to beautiful dancers but yeah i think it, it, you, it's a perfect harmony between material and director and as you mentioned before i totally agree that sometimes it's great when you get these authentic american movies that are directed by an outsider looking in i mean like I mentioned yeah. before night of the hunter with robert mitchum directed by charles lawton a brit and sometimes yeah. an outsider looking in can just see things and bring things to life in a way that just would never occur to someone who's actually from that environment. And so I think, uh, yeah, he was the, the perfect storyteller to handle this material. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting thing. Sometimes when you look at something from the outside, if you have good perception, you can immediately pick out the, the, the foundational, the cornerstones of what the story is and what's most important and what's not. Whereas when you live in it, so many of these details seem more important than they really are. And you might lose the heart of what's there for what's surrounding it. So yeah, sometimes coming in with outside eyes, uh, it's it's amazing how much more clearly you can see. Thanks. I can't remember the first line. Attend the Lords of France and Burgundy. Hey, get away from my head! You must keep silent when I'm dressing. I have work to do. Work. Hot bloody labor. I have to carry the world tonight. The whole bloody universe! I can't remember the first line! I'll take you through it. No one takes you through it! You're put through it night after night! And I haven't the strength! Well, you're a fine one, I must say. You of all people. You disappoint me, if you don't mind my saying so, sir. You who always say self-pity is the most unattractive quality on stage or off. Struggle and survival, you say. It's all that matters, you say. Struggle and survival. We all bloody struggle, don't we? I struggle. I, do you think it's easy for me? I'll tell you something for nothing. It is not easy, not one little bit, neither the struggle nor the bloody survival. The whole world's struggling for survival. The wiser and you. My dear Norman, I seem to have upset you. I apologize. I understand. We cannot always be strong. There are dangers in covering the cracks. Never mind about covering the cracks. What's about covering the wig join?
I'm sorry if I disturbed your concentration. We both understand servitude, Alfonso. Uh, <laughs> we won't forget to finish our eyebrows, will we, sir? What performance is this? Uh, tonight will be your 227th performance of the part, sir. 227 years. And I can't remember the first line. Beautiful. Well, let's move on to the final film on our to-do list. We have The Dresser from yeah. 1983, which is a very special movie. And it's been made... And there's been a different version. Like when you watch it on Amazon, Amazon's got like the wrong art to go with the film from 1983. But we're talking about the 1983 film directed Correct. by Peter Yates. And this one just floored me in ways because I had no idea what to expect. And it's definitely, I mean, I, I love Albert Finney. He's, he's one of my all, our all-time favorite volcanic actors. But yes. this one just absolutely just uh, knocked me on my ass in the best possible way. But for people who, because I've never heard of it, for people who may not have heard of The Dresser, ease people into what the premise is for this particular film. I hadn't heard of it either, and if I had just read the tagline and wasn't in the mood to watch a movie, I never would have watched this. Same. I, I, yeah, like, I really thought I was rolling that. the dice. <laughs> Absolutely. I thought I'll roll the dice on this one because I'd watched the other Yates movies, so he'd earned enough credit with me to give it a chance. Um, it's a mighty uh, performance from Albert Finney and Tom Courtney. Uh, the essential element of the movie the the theme of the movie or the narrative is is an aging theater troupe led by a sort of titanic figure on the english stage tour the country playing shakespeare as the bombs fall in world war ii which is which is kind of shakespearean in itself but the essence of the movie is this dresser which is literally a man who dresses albert finney's star character before each performance but what we find out is it's he does a lot more than dress him. He's yeah. almost he's like he's his guardian angel. He's his, um, he's his motivator. Nurse, like his caretaker. He's, his nurse. Like he's his, everything to him. Brings him a glass of beer when he needs one at the end of a performance. Knows like, him better than he knows himself. Yeah, I mean, it almost reminds me of like someone who works in an ambulance where you're like in like trying to save someone's life like all day, every day for their entire career because this guy, he's in. I mean. Albert Finney's character is so insane and has so many health problems and has so many raging ups and downs. He's got this massive ego and he's got these horrible peaks and valleys. But if you give him the right conditions and the right care and a lot of right attention at the right moment, he can go out on stage for four or five hours and be King Lear or go out there and be Othello or whatever the case might be. He's got all these plays tucked away in the back of his head. And sometimes he's getting confused in the dressing room. He might be putting on blackface for Othello when he's really playing King Lear. But like if you get if you can <laughs> if you can prepare him, he's ready to go and he will give you gold. And he is basically helping keep uh, keep the British end up by basically celebrating British culture during World War II at a time where they needed as much kind of patriotic fervor and home spirit as humanly possible. And if, I, if you were to criticize it, and this is not a criticism, but I guess some people might say it feels stagey, but it, it is stagey because it's based on a play and it right. 
come out on the theater uh, on the stage like two or three years prior to the film but i think it's staging the best possible way because it's a showcase for two yeah. marvelous actors where they're yeah. quite literally acting for the person in the in the back row of the theater just letting right. nothing leaving nothing in the gas tank and they just go all out and for people who love shakespeare and theater and drama and just volcanic performances uh, it, they will find this movie riveting from start to finish did you like shakespeare in love when it came out, I saw it twice in the theater, and at the time, I was I got I was like on the hype train. But as time has gone by, I like it less and less to the point where I don't even want to like. It's almost embarrassing or humiliating to admit that I took one of my best friends in college. I made him go with me to see it for my second time. He's like, dude, like. Why are you taking me to like a, on like a date to see, to see this movie? <laughs> right. But uh, so at the time, I, I was enjoying it, but it's not not, not a movie that I care to uh, to celebrate anymore. Okay. Yeah. I um I haven't gone back to it enough to lose much of my love for. It. I know I do like it a little less than I did initially, but I love that movie. There was something about as, a, as I think it was as a writer that I liked it so much. I liked the it idea. It took off when it came out. It was a crowd pleaser it was like that the definitive kind of miramax era gwyneth right. paltrow yeah that those, those late 90s movies that were kind of art house but not quite they felt like a weird hybrid between art house and hollywood and they would just take off and yeah gwyneth went home with the statue i love the seriousness of it the seriousness of the drama the seriousness of trying to become the writer you think you are and uh the play going on and trying to get this performance off I, I I see a little bit of that in the dresser, or rather I see a little bit of the dresser in it. Per, particularly, I you talk about being a bit of a stage play. It's that's actually one of the things I love best about it. Beyond just the acting, I love the sets. Uh, there's a few scenes outside. At one point, uh, we're in a town where a bomb is dropped, and to give you an idea how crazy Albert Finney is. He walks up to a man who's clearly just had his house bombed out, and he hands him two tickets to the theater. Yeah, and says, I hope to see you tonight. And it's like my house is on fire from a German bomb. I probably won't make it tonight. But he's yeah, but out for of him, it. The theater is everything. You sacrifice all. Like if you're gonna live that life in the way, and this is what the advice he gives to a young actress later on. Like you have to sacrifice all else. And if you've sacrificed all else, the play is the thing. So even if someone has had a, a bomb dropped in the house, he needs them to show up and appreciate what the, what they're putting into all this. Right. Um, yeah, later on, I think I sent you the quote on it, but he says, he says, you do not go through it. You are put through it to him. The theater, the Albert Finney character, the theater is like, uh, the ultimate, like, uh, lightning bolt through time connection with the muses. Like there's something mystical about it. And there's something that's clearly running him down. And he seems to have this sense of fate that his powers are fading and that he can't do this too many more times. And his dresser is there to make it happen night after night until literally he can't do it anymore, until the stage finally kills him. Well, also, it's World War II. They're not really able to recruit new crew, new actors. Like, anybody as of an eligible age is off fighting in a war, so they're trying to keep this thing going as long as possible. Like only Cripples and Nancy Boys, as they say, are, uh, are, are eligible to be uh, recruited for the casting crew. But I, <laughs> I guess I knew I was going to love this movie like within the first couple of minutes, because we see when Albert Finney at the end of his first night performance, he starts like, I mean, I guess it's the end of Othello and this one guy's carrying on and on. And Albert <laughs> Finney is talking <laughs> shit to him while on his deathbed, like growling about like, you know, not like basically his lecture at the end is 
when the play when once the character is dead, the play is over. Put the audience out of their misery and send right. them home. But I just love the way he chastises all of his fellow actors, or when they're trying to get to the uh, the train station the next day, and he's marching down the stairs like he's the king. And of course, his his dresser is trying to stop the train, but it's World War II. Like the trains have to run on time. And from a distance, Albert Finney just roars like, "Stop that train!" And it's yeah, like with exactly. such regal command that the train listens and they, and they stop and allow them on. That's that, that's that moment when you really understand his power and what makes him who he is because you're right, the dresser who's very effete and soft-spoken and very friendly and too kind and he's begging these people to stop the train. He's saying the actors yeah. are very elderly. They're coming. And that's one of the best parts is, is the cast he's carrying around is a ludicrous cast way past their prime. The only man who's in his prime has uh, clearly a, a leg that's too damaged to send him to comment. It's the great uh, Edward Fox, who's, you know, who's an excellent actor. Yeah, that scene in the train is hilarious because he cannot get that train to stop. The whistle blows. It's literally chugging away, and he's 150 yards away on top of a platform and just bellows it, and the conductor instinctively slams on the brakes <laughs> and looks back, and he's like, i got to stop the train. And they all run up, and the the the, in, the engineers on the on the carts are angry. You can't stop this train. What are you doing? And you know he basically just huffs past him and gets the entire crew on, and and they head off. But that's the kind of he is going insane. He is slowly dying. He is a megalomaniac, and World War II has clearly sort of broken his his full hold on reality. But when he gets locked into what he does, at one point they say this is his 227th performance as uh, King Lear, which is one of the most difficult plays in the language. Well, it's, language. A, it's a long play. Lear's in it a lot. There's a point in the play where he disappears for a while, and usually that's when the actor will just quite literally go take a nap and rest up for their right. for their final death scene. But it's an exhausting role to perform. It'll right. it'll drain you dry. But he, uh, as long as he can remember the first few lines. Then he's off, and he's ready to he's ready to do the uh, the entire play. But I love when they're uh, starting the play when Tom Courtney comes out and is like, "If those of you who wish to live, blah blah blah." But it's a Freudian slip. He meant he meant to say, "Those of you who wish to leave." But there's dust coming down from the rafters yeah. because bombs are being dropped all around. I just love this idea that even in your darkest hour, right, the play must go on, the show must go on. Shakespeare right. matters, culture matters, theater matters. Like theater right. is life. And that if you're not preserving Shakespeare, then what what are you fighting for? This is one of the one of the quintessential like building blocks of their entire society and culture. And I just love how they're quite literally in an existential fight for their lives, and yet Shakespeare will still go on each and every night. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. That's that's one of the elements of this movie that I, I love the most. And he does relate that to the English stiff upper lip attitude many times. And many times as Finney starts to fold and it looks like he won't be able to go on, his dresser reminds him that he believes in that English code of don't pity yourself, don't make excuses, we have a show to do tonight, and you're going to go on. But I want people to know that this movie's very funny. Oh, God, there, yeah. Especially if you're an Albert Finney fan from movies like Under the Volcano or whatever the case might be. Yes. Albert Finney, he, he, brings, he brings the uproarious laughter from start to finish. I, I love Albert Finney. Uh, following this, Tom Courtney is has to be one of my most admired actors as well. I was looking up his filmography. I didn't even realize he was the guy who he was. This guy was protean. This guy shapeshifted. He was different people all the time. He was one of the great actors of his generation. You won't believe that he's not this guy that he's playing in this role. He is so locked into this dresser character 
that it feels like it's just a guy playing himself, but it's just a great Wait, actor. If you compare this to Dr. Zhivago, you're like, whoa, how is could this those even be the on same? More, those are opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of characters. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Zhivago, he's one of the most terrifying like, Bolshevik officers you could ever hope to, uh, to co- hope to come across. He is the definition of a believer who's going to like you know destroy the destroy his enemies, et cetera, and so forth. Right. And but I, I guess the early thing I've seen him is uh, Billy Liar, which is an early uh, John Schlesinger yeah. film that he did with uh, Julie Christie, where he's incredible in that as well, where he's just he's delightful and charming. But yeah. I love how like fastidious and finicky and delicate and like you know he's obviously somebody who is not necessarily um, uh, the embodiment of a lot of masculine attributes, but he's got just this like incredible resourcefulness and sense of endurance and power and so on and so forth. And like in his own way, he's got a, a spine of steel, and he's got he's making sure that this volcanic performer. No matter what it takes, they're going to jolt him back to life on an, an individual evening. He's like a wife and a nursemaid and a psychiatrist and his biggest fan. And, of course, he's just so wounded at the end, like in, on his deathbed when Albert Finney forgets to mention his dresser. He mentions all the other uh, people in the cast and crew, but the one person who's been kind of keeping him going, he gets uh, gets overlooked. That's definitely the secondary tragedy in this play movie, if if it is indeed a tragedy. it's It definitely has some very sad elements but it's absolutely true because Norman, in many ways, the, Nor- the, the dresser's name is Norman, is is what Albert Finney, he is he is somehow like uh, Albert Finney's mirror image doppelganger of, of some kind. But he embodies what Finney wants to embody. He does whatever it takes to make it happen. He's he's nipping on his booze all night, and over the course of this movie, this turns out to be a pretty heavy night yeah, for the booze. Totally shit face. <laughs> and by the end, he's pretty hammered. But who can blame him for yeah, what he managed to pull the, off? The brandy is the medicine that keeps a lot of these people going. A- absolutely. But uh, Norman was, you know, he was unafraid to be himself despite the indignities he suffered. He's at the market trying to get some powder for the actors, and a man calls him Miss. He says, "You'll be lucky to find that Miss." You know, clearly calling him a woman which uh, was meant to be an insult. He's blown off at the train station by, by, you know, as we already talked about, they won't stop the train for him. Um, Madge, who's, who's the other kind of uh, higher up in the theater troupe, who's, who's much more pessimistic about what is possible, she degrades Norman all the time and doesn't consider him as important as he is. But really, Norman is, he's like the pacemaker in Albert Finney's chest. He keeps the heart beating. Perfectly stated, yeah. To, to make this thing happen. And so when he's, Finney is massively selfish. I think that would be the number one trait of his personality, be massively selfish and grandiose. He writes this glowing introduction to his, his memoirs, which he's going to write, and he thanks everybody on earth and not Norman. And Norman had been doing this job, which you watch throughout the movie, which is the hell of a job for who knows how many years. Yeah, dealing and with the, his I, dirty underwear at the end of the night and all this nasty shit. Everything. And so the fact that he would not, and he, and Norman, the really sad part is Norman reads through the whole thing and Finney writes it. And lastly, and, and Norman says, Oh, sir, like you saved me for last. I can't, and he flips it over and it's like, thanks to William Shakespeare yeah. for writing this great stuff. <laughs> and he's just crushed by it. And, uh, man, it, it, it is the one thing that Norman clearly needed in life was to matter to people and for people to be grateful for his contributions and the person he devoted his life to couldn't be bothered to even give him that sincere thank you at the end. 
Well, Peter Yates had some uh, really uh, moving words to say about this uh, film because obviously he came from a theater background, but he wrote, if I can make a film which will get more people to go to the theater, I will feel I've achieved something. I don't think there's ever been a film which shows just a piece of the theater tradition and presents it in an attractive and palatable way. I hope with the dresser we've changed that. And it got tons of Oscar nominations. I mean, both Tom Courtney and Albert Finney were nominated for Best Actor, got nominated for Best Director, Best Adaptive Screenplay, failed to win anything, but still, five nominations is great. And Tom Courtney said that uh, the play's about the interaction of the two men, and without yeah. denigrating the actors I played opposite in the stage versions, who were Freddie Jones and Paul Rogers, the fact that Albert is what he is, a true theatrical giant, makes it work better as a piece. I know that. And apparently one yeah. Orson Welles and Michael Caine had thought about doing it together, which would have been interesting, but once you see it done as well as it's done in this particular context, it's hard to imagine anybody else playing the role. And I think it's uh, Anthony Hopkins and Ian McKellen who did it in the remake and I love both those actors but yeah. I'll have a hard time watching any other, uh, other version of this ever again yeah I would agree with that I was I was looking at the other versions available in the theater versions I could probably go see it in the theater because that venue is so different I could accept that other actors had to play it in terms of seeing it on, on film again I, I'll give the other one a shot, but I can't imagine it beats this. It's it's such a it's such an electric power up between these two, and uh, it's you can't you don't want to take your eyes off it, and you don't want it to end. It's uh, it's an amazing pair up by these two, and uh, the way they worked with each other and off of each other, it's one of those things that you can't manufacture that kind of chemistry. It either happens or it doesn't, and you need two people who just work on some sort of chemical level together and talent level together and these two and these two do that oh yeah and there's just so much great comedy i love when uh, albert Fenney is freezing That's hilarious up and can't go on stage and right the, the actors are having to improvise dialogue which is tough to do in like elizabethan verse like it's right. not like you're just kind of doing like a your typical kind of you know down and dirty character driven drama you right. have to do it in like iambic pentameter and they're having to extemper i guess extemporize is the word they use and then right. finally he marches out on the stage and, and oh it's just uh, it's magical stuff but yeah i think this is one of those movies that is is a true, genuine love song to the theater, to the the eccentrics going on, the, the eccentrics that make theater happen. And man, this is one of the, my best kind of surprise discoveries in a very, very long time because it was not on my radar at all. I had no idea it existed, and I just found it so completely, thoroughly satisfying from start to finish. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I had, like I said, I had the exact same experience with it. I, I didn't have high hopes, and had it not been a Yates movie, I wouldn't have even watched it. Um, couple things you mentioned that that are great uh when you're talking about the aging troop the, the movie starts out with the with the dresser polishing a, a silver plate an award for hamlet we're in world war ii now so this is somewhere between 1939 1940 maybe 41 but it feels like 40 yeah, the blitz maybe the blitz pre blitz era the blitzkrieg era so you're talking at least a decade in the past is when that award was given uh the young men are off fighting the war and he goes on a rant about what uh, you, you, you gave one of the quotes about what he said, but he, he's basically looking at himself in the mirror trying to get himself together. And he says, what have I come to? I've never had a company like this one. Herr Hitler has made it difficult for Shakespearean companies, which also speaks to his egomania. Oh, like yeah. Herr Hitler's <laughs> thinking about his Shakespearean company, how this could affect his, his stage play. And later, as he's testing out the spotlights and he's telling the spotlight man, this is only for me. Don't put this on anybody else. You follow me with this light. 
and he's telling his his fool who has to go on the stage, and, and he like, says, "Don't, don't move get in I'm my talking. life." Like I'm here to bring the laughs, or I'm here to bring the, bring the tears, etc. That's what he says, and he says he literally says to him, "You'll have to find what light you can." Yeah. <laughs> so this <laughs> this light is for me. You find the rest, and you'll be fine out there. Which Classic. is what, you know, grand grandiosity in the extreme. Oh, it's great. Well, let's talk some honorable mentions. I know you know uh, Peter Yates' career far better than I from start to finish, and I know that um, yeah, I've, I've already mentioned the other Peter Yates films. Actually, I haven't mentioned yet a film uh, that I have seen many times, but Kroll from 1983, which I covered, I think it was on the 26 Movies from Hell with uh, <laughs> with Dan and Brad. We tackled it. But yeah, Kroll's a movie that I saw many times, and it's just a big, giant fantasy extravaganza which has it has its moments but obviously quite different from films like because the dresser was made immediately after and right. eyewitness and breaking away were made right before but the variety of his output is extraordinary but what 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 for you are the um the big takeaways from looking at his career overall Kroll hey, Kroll is interesting Kroll is a mess you know one of the things i think he, he does have a large variety one of the things that i think Kroll suffers from for yates is it was so fantastical and it was shot so much on sets and with set pieces is it was totally antithetical to his style, which is real on scene on location. And so much of Kroll just, it looks like a soundstage and it's very hard to get into Kroll for me uh, personally in that, that fantasy drama. It's just, it's, it's very set piecey. So for Yates though, to even attempt that is a, is a pretty ambitious, ambitious attempt. Uh, for me, honorable mentions, I think Robbery 1967, the one that made him, That, if you pair that with Bullet, that's a great double feature right there. There is a car chase in Robbery, Jaguar versus Jaguar through the streets of London, that is clearly the precursor to Bullet and why McQueen wanted him over there. It's an excellent car chase between, again, robbers and cops in London, and uh, it's harrowing, it's it's thrilling, it's really well edited, and the cars are, I mean, 1960s Jaguars are, are just beautiful cars to look at. Um, another honorable mention is Murphy's War with the great Peter O'Toole. More action scenery with uh, a helicopter and a German U-boat uh, out in some far-flung islands in World War II, and sort of a, a maddening obsession comes over this man, Murphy, who will do anything to destroy this U-boat, despite the fact the war has actually ended in the middle of one of his his forays. He, he goes mad. It's a little like a Moby Dick story. It's, the U-boat has become his white whale, and he's going to chase it to the bitter end. And uh, a last one I would say, and it's, it's downscale for Yates, but an innocent man with Tom Selleck in the late 80s about a man framed up by cops for a crime, and he basically does his time and uh, learns some lessons and comes out and uh, is forced to stand his ground again. These cops are so dirty. Um, is is another is another uh, movie definitely. Well, did you ever see Year of the Comet? Because I remember I read William Goldman's book Adventures in the Screen Trade, and William Goldman obviously he wrote uh, the Hot Rock and major screenwriter, and he was talking at the time in his book about his reasons why he thought the Year of the Comet failed and failed to find an audience but i have not seen it but it's a reunion between peter yates and william goldman but no. Goldman was expressing some bewilderment as to why this movie just completely totally just i mean some movies just don't translate they just they just, the audience is not there they're not interested and this movie just died but i didn't know if you had any theories as to why no, I didn't actually. This is one of the ones that I still haven't seen, so I just pulled it up. I'll watch this. Yeah, I'll so get even back for to his you fans, I haven't seen it. So it's like, yeah, yeah I but, haven't. No, I haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah, so I guess William Goldman, well, he had to take that mystery to uh, to his grave. 
Man, it can be mysterious, you know. Some movies are out there. It's We talked about before. It, it is a mystery. Sometimes there's just an alchemy that can't be explained. Yeah, and there are some movies that are beloved that still haven't found an audience. Like some people joke about how like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the Robert Altman film, still hasn't yeah. turned a profit, even though people have been watching it for 50 years and talking about it. just not a commercial film in any yeah. way, shape, or form. So some movies just are missing that magic mixture. But I just want to reiterate what I said before. I just can't thank you enough for pitching this topic because – like most film fans, I oftentimes fall into the trap of thinking that I know everything that I know everything there is that, that that's worth knowing, and that nothing could be further from the truth. And it was cool as hell to see a few movies that I'd never seen before, ones that just had such a massive impact on me. But as we start to wind down to a close, is there anything you want to plug, promote in terms of like your social media or your own personal life or your work or anything along those lines? Uh, I don't have a, a whole lot to plug right now because we're in. A, I, I was planning to write a, my first uh, nonfiction book, a college football book, this autumn, and COVID has has just uh, carpet bombed a lot of our social functions. And college football appears to be a bit of a tragedy right now. Something's going to happen, but not the season we need for a book. So it looks like that's going to be pushed uh, another year. I'm on Twitter at the Mark Shipper uh, S C H I P P E R. If you want to. Join me over there. I try to have fun on Twitter. Um, How dare you? That's not what Twitter's for. It's for righteous it, it, indignation and shrieking and howling. Yeah, I've I've been uh, I've played that game before and I'm burned out on it. So no, it's emotionally exhausting. Early on in Twitter, I would occasionally indulge in a few fights, and I finally realized, wow, like I'm drained now, and I'm like yeah. tired, and I'm angry. I could have done research for a podcast, or I could have gone for a run, or I could have done a million other things that are more worthwhile. Those giant Twitter battles are so self-defeating and such a waste of time. But some people just sit on Twitter talking shit all day, every day about whatever their cause might be, and I just, I am not playing. I use Twitter to post stuff and hang out and talk with my friends. I try to keep it fun, try to keep it light, and yeah. Um, yeah Luckily, I mean, the fact that you and I are here recording shows that Twitter can be used for a positive because I meet yeah. strangers all the time and we record episodes and it's a ton of fun. So, yeah, but it, but right. it takes a conscious act of will to keep Twitter positive. Yes, yes, it does. Uh, someone wrote an article lately. I think it said Twitter stole my life. You can Google that. It's actually a really good piece someone wrote. And I, I just had the same feelings. I would look down at the time I spent and realizing I never even looked someone in the eye during the course of this life or death battle on Twitter, and the pointlessness of it was like overwhelming. Like, what are you doing? This is a waste of your life. This is a waste of your time. You've got to get off Twitter. So I try to do the same thing. I get on and get off. I try to meet good people. I definitely pitched pieces there uh, for publication. I met you on Twitter. Uh, good can come of it. But I'm with you absolutely. You got to uh, have self control, and you got to know why you're on Twitter. If you're on there to wander around and find someone to get angry about, you're going to find it really fast. <laughs> yes, yes, you are. It's uh, oh, it's just it's in a giant ocean of frayed nerves and um, moral certitude. And uh, oh uh, man, yeah, I, if any if, if if anything, this podcast has proven over the last couple of years is that my morals are uh, definitely dubious at best. So I'll never claim to have moral certitude on on any particular topic. But I hope you'll come back and do another filmmaker later on down the road. And I wish you the best of luck with all your writing endeavors. I would love to do it. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, when I'm not on, I'm always listening. So. Uh... Wrong Reel Forever.
All right, very cool. Excellent. I like your style. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down these Peter Yates flicks. I, I, can, I can vouch for each and every single one of them. And if you want to talk more, you can hunt us down on Twitter, Facebook, etc. You can look for at Wrong Real or at, or at Colbrex, whatever the case might be. And if you want some short form content in the near future, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. But we can't thank you enough for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but... Uh... It'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.